Welcome to the Top Gear Magazine podcast, a peek behind the curtain of what it's really like to drive other people's cars for a living. These are the stories behind the stories. Hello everyone, bit of a bonus special pod this one. Um, Rowan Corncastle is away at the moment at the Dakar rally somewhere in Saudi Arabia, no doubt coated head to toe in dust. Um, We haven't actually heard from him for nearly two weeks, but we're pretty sure he's still alive. He did say though that he'd record a podcast from the bivouac to give you a sandy soupçon of this year's race. So do you want to know absolutely everything there is to know about the Dakar rally? Of course you do. Here's your man, over to Rowan, wherever he is. Hello, Top Gear Magazine podcast listeners. How are you doing? It is Rowan Horncastle here in the Saudi Arabian desert, somewhere uh, outside Ha'il. Um, I'm away from the boys in the studio uh, and have been for about two weeks because I am trying my best to chase the most torturous most sport event in the world, the Dakar Rally. I'm here in the bivouac, which is basically the mobile paddock of the rally, and I thought I would give you guys a little glimpse, a walk and talk around it, uh, to try and explain a bit more about this absolutely fascinating race. But doing so, um, it may be a bit noisy in places. You can hear diesel generators, air compressors, some dodgy European music from people working late into the night on their cars after stage eight uh, of 14 uh, from this year's race. Uh, But it is an absolute monster, this thing. And it's a perfect opportunity to kind of walk around say what I see and explain a bit more about it because it does take a while to get your head around the running of this thing because there's so much complexity and so much madness. Uh, it's the 46th running of the event. I'm lucky enough to have been to four of them and yeah the Dakar rally first off quite confusingly we're not in Senegal Dakar but for you who may know the original race was from Paris to Dakar the Paris Dakar and then it hopped over to South America when that got a bit fighty and dangerous in Africa. And then since then, it's now for five years been in Saudi Arabia, where instead of hopping from country to country, it races around it. And the landscape and scenery and terrain here is a bit mad and actually perfect for it. We will set aside uh, the controversy that surround Saudi Arabia and sporting events around it for the time being and focus focus on the motorsport as I walk past one of the sensational Dakar classic cars, um, a fantastic Pajero Evo Mitsubishi. But we'll get onto those later. So um, I thought I'd start with the basics really of, you know, what is the Dakar rally? Um, Put simply, it's torture. It's torture for oily car parts, human bodies, your soul, your emotions, you you feel it all here because it's the daddy, daddy of desert racing. You know, you've got the Bajas of the world, the Mint 400s, other bits and pieces of taking things across places they shouldn't go. This is racing 10,000 kilometers in two weeks in as part of one giant race. It puts abuse on absolutely every 
component of a car and organ, muscle, brain of human beings. But the most amazing thing is what takes part because there are so many categories. You've got, well, no cars normal, but you've got cars, quads, bikes, trucks, uh, future technology now, and everything in between. And everything is going absolutely flat chat through the desert, over dunes, and uh, across anything that Saudi Arabia can throw at it. It's, um, oh my God, I've just seen a, a Safari 911. There's plenty of more of those to come, but everything here, we're over a week in now, so everything's covered in dense bruises and as much dust as you could throw at it, having crossed many deserts. And on that point, you're gonna hear about, I'm not gonna outline every single car, because there's 778 people taking part this year uh, across eight categories. And yeah, you may hear that, that's a side-by-side, -side. unlike one of your farmers, a farmer's uh, you know, way of getting around the field. These things are basically mini race cars with fat suspension that can get across everything. And so yeah, back to the history. 1979 was the when the, the, face, the, the race first ran and um, basically anyone who takes part, you've just got to give them respect because it's a feat of endurance like nothing else taking part in this. I, it's, 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 it's the hardest thing to cover um, and trying to articulate, no matter what form, in words, pictures, uh, videos. I'm just about to be run over by a giant 10-ton truck. That's a big stinky diesel going past. Because the distances and the vastness of everything and the scale is just huge. And to actually race it is something else. Even to try and come and cover it, the only way to effectively cover it is to be in a helicopter everywhere because the cars are just going route one uh, across absolutely everything. And then, uh, yeah, to, to be on it and I'm walking past KTM's pit stable now, to be on the bikes is just, it, it, it is a, just something else. The guys who take part have got three pints down the pub for life, in my opinion. The danger, the jeopardy is all turned up to 11 here. But also the visuals, if you haven't seen the Dakar rally at all, please go on YouTube now and just type in Dakar best bits. Over the years, there's been moments that you just can't quite believe cars doing. Some exceptional crashes. And yeah, it's if you're used to circuit racing, it certainly beats some cars going around Paddock Hill Bend when they're just firing off dunes and flat out across the desert, wheel to wheel, endlessly. And the... They're racing for two weeks straight, and currently in the motorbike class, they are within, the, the top one and two are within a second of each other after nine days racing, which is absolutely insane. But fundamentally, it runs like a normal rally, further and over more extreme terrain. They're stage based, so you have road sections where you leave each morning to get to the stage, then you race a bit, and then you do a bit more road driving to get to the bivouac at the end. And even those road distances uh, are monstrous. You can be on the road for five hours in this race car, then arrive at the stage, and then you have to go flat out across the desert as fast as you can without knowing anything, because that's another unique part of the Dakar Rally. Unlike a, a normal rally where you have a co-driver next to you, 
which you have with the cars here, a bit diff more difficult on the bike, where you get pace notes. Here you just get a road book given to you at the, in the morning before the stage. So there's no rehearsal, you have no idea where you're going, there's no recce or pre-running, so you just have to trust your navigator who is there to navigate, not to tell you what's coming up uh, turn by turn. That's on you as a driver. And distances, to try and put it into scale somewhere, it's you know 13 Daytona 500, Indianapolis 500, all together in consecutive days. And you know each day you come back, your car's broken down by mechanics, seen over, looked over, and then you go and do it again for 14 days. Uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. There is one rest day in the middle on the Saturday, but it's not a rest day whatsoever because the whole car is stripped down and seen over, checked over and rebuilt. That includes the engine, the gearbox, the dampers, the works. You basically go into the second week with a, with a, with a new car, effectively. And there's other interesting variables, unlike other rallies, stuff called marathon stages. Uh, these stages last for two consecutive days, that's two days of racing, where there's no assistance from anyone from the team allowed whatsoever. So drivers go and stay in the desert all together. It's quite cute, they all get a campfire, a pop-up tent. So you get the likes of Sebastian Loeb and Carlos Sainz, putting away their grievances and seeing Kumbaya and sleeping under the stars to then wake up in the morning and then go and do another stage again. I'm actually just walking past the, what used to be called the Malimoto class, which I have to say, everyone involved here gets the deepest respect, but these boys and girls get even more so. They arrive, it's all a motorbike class, and all they have is one ammunition box. So just seeing, it's probably a meter by 30 centimeters, uh, 30 centimeters long and wide. You could probably pack, I don't know, a few bottles of wine in it uh, and some pants and some parts. And that's basically your all you have for two weeks. These guys run completely solo and independently. And then they ride all day. They have to navigate themselves. Then they have to come in, eat, fi fix their own tent up, fix their own bike. And if you've had a big mechanical failure, it can be up all night and then go do it again, pack up your little box, put it on a truck, and then you go and do that again. And so you're all by yourself. It's uh, insane. Right, I'm gonna point the microphone at something here. This is the Audi RSQ e-tron. Did you hear that futuristic whir? That is Audi's pioneering project to try and electrify the desert. Um, it's basically the, the ultimate um, exercise to show that range anxiety doesn't need to be a thing when you have a hybrid because that car is uh, running electric powered however it does have a rather unique range extender because for its three uh, electric motors there is an old DTM car engine from an RS4 or RS5 I can't quite remember running constantly at 5000 rpm as a generator to help power the electrics. But fundamentally, it is an electric car driving across the desert uh, and some stage is doing 800 kilometers. And currently, Carlos Sainz is winning the race in that technology. They've only been doing it for three years. They were brave doing it, going against like the Toyota Hilux with, at the time, it had V8 engines, now twin turbo V6s, and staples like Sebastian Loeb's ProDrive BRX Hunter 
go uh, Google that in Callum designed buggy race car. And they're using something that looks very outlandish, Audi, and freakish, but also very cool at the same time. It is the most bizarre sounding car on the track because you just have um, a solid engine note constantly, and then a squirrely motors. Um, there's no gearbox like at uh, most electric cars. So it has advantages over the dunes because they're not changing gear, etc. However, it does sound bizarre when it's going up to cliff faces where everyone's down shifting and the revs are rising and lowering and that thing just maintains this constant RPM. Anyway, away from that, as I walk past the catering tent, um, because here in the bivouac there's 3,000 people which is home for and the bivouac moves every day more or less, well it has on this rally, back in the day in Africa and South America you'd move every day because of Covid and other things they started doing loop stages here in Saudi Arabia but this year we've been on the move every day where the whole thing is a self-contained, not no access to the public, race paddock effectively, with all the infrastructure. It's a hotel, it's a restaurant, it's got your medical center, it's got all the uh, media and broadcasting going on in here too, but also the mechanics and uh, workshops for everyone, which are all portable. Because each night everyone has to uh, pack it down lumber across uh, Saudi Arabia to a new point. Again, it can be up to, you know, eight hour, nine hour drives on the road. They arrive at their new destination and have to set it all up again. So it's really a massive feat of uh, efficiency and engineering how this thing operates. And if it was weaponized, it'd probably be the most ruthless army in the world. I could just pack up, move forward, pack down again, get everything sorted and just rinse and repeat for two weeks. And as I was saying, oh God, I'm going across more good cars here. Um, this is actually Sebastian Loeb's BRX Hunter that I'm just walking past now. He's currently in a duel. Sebastian Loeb, obviously well-known, multiple World Rally Champion, has been, he's now set his targets on winning the Dakar, which is no easy task. Um, you have to have a fair amount of luck on your side. Uh, I've learned while being here because even the smallest mechanical failure ruins your whole race and you're out of it straight away and it's not like normal racing where there's tenths between people there are at times but you know you kind of deal in minutes and you know if your suspension breaks you can fix it in the desert but you can be out for two hours but Seb Loeb didn't have a fantastic start he was 45 minutes behind and now he's uh he's second second place so you can gain 45 minutes on your competitors over a few days and uh, it really isn't over until it's over and there's been many cases in the past where people have been leading uh, the race and it all fall apart on the last day and people who have not been leading or even won a stage they end up winning the whole thing one of those being Mr Dakar himself Stefan Petterhansel, who is just an extraordinary human being, really, because he's competed here, I think, nearly over 30 years. But he started off on motorbikes um, and he's won the event 14 times. Uh, he's done it, I think, eight times behind the wheel and six holding onto handlebars. And, you know, to be fast on a bike and 
in a car. It's uh, quite the dexterity, but you know, in the past, Colin McRae, Carlos Sainz is still fighting for his fourth win here. Big names come to it. Roman Dumar, another circuit racing and incredibly capable person uh, behind the wheel. They're all fighting for their Dakar victory because even though people want Monaco GP, Indy 500s, Le Mans, etc., this one's quite, quite the medal to hang, uh, hang upon yourself. And then, uh, what we got here? Oh, we've got one of the trucks. I've got to talk about the trucks. So, as I was saying, as the bivouac moves, it used to be that you have the service trucks chasing across the desert too, and you can have trucks with spares on in case you break down in the desert. But those guys back in the days in the Africa would start racing against each other. And then that's how it became a race within a race to the point where they then had to make their own truck class. And these aren't your normal Eddie Stobart's going across. They are the most visually impressive things. And again, go on Google or YouTube and type in Dakar trucks and you will see these absolute beasts jump and go speeds across the desert and on off-road terrain like you've, you've, you've never ever seen. And just to give you uh, some facts about them, you know, they're, they're 1,100 horsepower. They've got 13 litre, six cylinder turbocharged engines. They're near enough 10 tons. And unlike the bikes, which, you know, you have to navigate yourself with a scrolling roadbook that goes down, and then the luxury of the cars or the side-by-sides where they have a navigator against them. There's three people in the trucks. There's not just a chief morale officer in there too. Uh, but you need three of you in there, sat abreast, one to navigate, one to drive, and then one as a spare, basically, too. And the bikes, they range from, you know, they're, they're, they're not your kind of BMW GSs. These are super enduros, and they're like, I think they're 450cc, and the quads go up to uh, 750cc, same with the side-by-sides. But it's all got a bit complicated with the... T4 and T3 class, not to bore you a bit, but the, you know, the buggies are basically becoming prototype buggies and uh, actually look like quite an attractive way to get involved. And the people getting involved, it's vast. There are 130 rookies this year, which is a lot of people having a crack, and the attrition rate is incredibly high. People not making even the best names full foul of the Dakar. There's 133 riders, 27 women taking part this year. It's a, largely a French event, so there's lots of French, but you've got everyone from Spain, Netherlands, Japan, all here. So it's it's one for all, but it's an expensive thing to take part of, but all motorsport is really, but also one, like I said, that is dangerous. There is quite a few fatalities on the history books with regards to the, the Dakar. But then, uh, and there's unfortunately just been one this year as well on a bike. So rest in peace to those people. And uh, yeah, they were doing something they loved, but it just does show the dangers of, of what happens. So I guess I better say how it started too, because um, it all came about because one bloke got lost basically, a guy called Thierry Sabine. He was on, the, uh, on his motorbike, having a pot around as part of a rally in the Libyan desert. Got lost, and eventually, there was a rather noisy 
four cylinder goes past, got a bit himself in a bit of a navigational pickle, lost in the desert, and rather than being uh, than crapping himself and thinking I'm never doing that again, it was a source of inspiration. As when he returned back to France, he goes, ah, oh, I think we should do that again from Paris to old uh, Dakar in Senegal. So then he started plotting his route, and then it started growing and growing and growing. And over the years, we've seen big name manufacturers take part. You know, the likes of Porsche, Mitsubishi, Citroen, Peugeot, Audi being a big name this time. Um, because it is one hell of a way to say that your cars can survive. And uh, as cars go, because uh, it's not just top flight factory teams taking part whatsoever. You know, in Thierry's day, it was just basically a bunch of Larry mates. Um, and over the years, there's been some wild cars take, pass, uh, take part. We've had um, a Rolls-Royce Corniches out here currently. There's a, a 2CV with 40-odd uh, horsepower pluckily going across the desert. But one of the most iconic cars is uh, Porsche's 959 Dakar, which won back in 1985. And as you've seen from the latest 911 Dakar, um, a source of inspiration and a useful marketing tag uh, to come across. But also we've got wild stuff. Google the Jules Proto 6x4 racer. It's where a lot of weirdness all came to together in one go. It had six wheels, a Chevy V8, a Porsche gearbox, four-wheel drive, and uh, it also retired from the 1984 race because the chassis snapped. Who would have thought it? And I wish I could speak to some drivers. You may hear them uh, screaming from the physio and massages as I walk past various tents as I go through the paddock here, but um, or they're all tucked up in bed because it is near enough 10 o'clock. And the weather, even though we are in the desert, you'd think, oh, Saudi Arabia in January, that'd be nice and hot. It is currently about three degrees as I'm walking around with gloves on and a bobble hat in the true rallyist enthusiast uniform. And there are also a large selection of camper vans where a lot of people stay in these modern times rather than being pitched up in a tent in the bivouac and you will hear noise all night long when you stay here. The bivouac is a dusty, dirty place uh, and it's also very, very noisy as everyone throughout the, the night is working on their cars, uh, revving engines, sorting things out. You've got nut guns going. Air compressors are your friends as they produce high-powered pressured air which can clean everything. So they cars come in, they're just hosed down with air, but you end up hosing yourself down because you too are covered in uh, dust and dirt and grime. There are showers and toilets, so that is nice, but it's it's Glastonbury for motorsport. That's the truck that nearly killed me earlier comes past again. Because he's probably just been and fueled himself up, which has probably taken the 20 minutes I've been talking to you, fill himself up with diesel so he can chug across the desert uh, tomorrow. Annoyingly, it's quite hard to uh, to watch the Dakar, especially being in Saudi Arabia now, but also just to follow it. The cars go so fast that even if you're on the stage, you see them once. And it is quite a nice parade because the bikes always start the stage for safety reasons more than anything else. And then, uh, then it's the cars will come out later. Everything's timed and everyone sets off uh, a staggered start. Uh, and then the buggies come through and then the trucks with their big wheels and tires, you know, 
chewing up the road. You don't want that for the bikes to start with. But then it must be absolutely terrifying when you're an amateur and you've got someone like Seb Loeb or Carlos Sainz on an absolute rampage coming behind you. The bikes are fitted with alarms so that when someone is behind uh, and coming up a distance, you are notified so you kind of get out of the way because it can get dangerous with the dust and you can get swept up. And uh, unfortunately, there has been times where people have been killed by uh, cars hitting bikes. I'm walking past the service trucks. Now, the service trucks are basically workshops on wheels, quite impressive wheels. Normally, it's probably about 12 of them on, on, each, uh, on each truck. And then they're filled with wheels too, it needs to be in tires, but also pretty much most of a car that you can build together. And these are where all the spare parts are kept. And then, but also on top of some of them, you have pop-up tents, because it's where the mechanics sleep. So these are one-stop shops for pretty much everything. It's a rolling hotel and workshop in one, but no one gets that much sleep here at the Dakar because everyone is working. The drivers get the credit a lot of the time for the endurance aspects, but it's everyone behind the scenes from the people, you know, cooking the food to making sure the car's working mechanically fine. As an, a great classic Range Rover, from the classic class goes past me. Actually, I'm gonna pop in towards where the, uh, the classics are. I've been walking solidly since I've been speaking to you. And um, yeah, I haven't even got from one end to the other of this vast, vast place. Ah, actually, as I'm going past there, with the generator running, there is uh, M Sport with their Fords set up. They've got two Ford Rangers with Nanny Romar driving one of them as a bit of a test case for next year, where they're going to be taking part as a full factory team to with some Raptors, I believe, or something, they could be Rangers, but a Raptor of some variety. Um, but they're just here on a bit of a scouting mission to kind of uh, see what it's like. Unfortunately, one of them's already bitten the dust as it's, uh, there's only got one car on the race currently, but they have got a very impressive setup, very white trucks, considering they're in the middle of the the desert, but um, them and ProDrive and Audi and Toyota are the big hitters. Dacia are also arriving next year, so which is which is quite cool. It's becoming a bigger thing, and I think in the grand schemes of motorsport, it's not that expensive, um, but it's not that easy to uh, see, as I was mentioning beforehand. YouTube channel is probably the best place. Eurosport and your various territories and countries will have coverage, but um, fortunately in the UK, we don't have the rights, I believe. And you basically, they limit you in a very, uh, the guys who run this, the ASO, are the same people behind um, the Tour de France. And they limit how much, uh, how much footage you can see. And the best way to get a sense of the scale of the Dakar is literally just to run a GoPro and see them go through the insane terrain. You just see highlight pictures of helicopters in dunes and cars in dunes. They go through mountain section, kind of WRC stages, gravelly bits. There's obviously the road sections. You want to piece it all together to get the scale. But then Saudi Arabia has some unbelievable scenery and places that they drive through. And it looks like a video game. You know, cars like the BRX Hunter and the Audi looks like them. Oh, listen to this flat six. Here comes that Safari 911. Oh. That sounds good. That is a genuine G-Series uh, Safari rally car. 
I'll try not to get run over, but... Oh. And behind there are two very interesting cars, which are two 959 lookalikes. They're not actually 959s, because that would be a very expensive but very cool way to do the Dakar Classic. They're actually 964s, which have been modified into it, I think by a French team, but they look absolutely fantastic in their Rothmaus uh, liveries, not Rothmans, because they probably didn't get the rights to that. But also, I'm walking past a selection of classic Land Cruisers. There's a Land Rover Defender, a Series 2 Range Rover, and lots of other... Oh, there's also the most fantastic Renault 4 with a exhaust pipe running up the A-pillar, out the engine, up the A-pillar, and across the roof, which is sensational. Ah, oh, and I've got a trio of G-Wagons uh, here too, which is uh, Jackie X, famous racing driver, uh, competed here, both in the 959, but also in this G-Wagon, uh, which is also running and um, looking insanely cool. There are, surprisingly, a lot of Chinese participants too. In the T1 and Ultimate class of people with V8 engines, Chevy engines, shapes that you can't quite recognize, but running very well and very loudly, um, especially compared to the Audi. You, I'm walking past the service truck. It's going to get noisy again. And there's a man doing his washing. They've got full washer dryer set up in there, which is a, a good one. And a, a washing rack on the roof. Now, I'm walking through quite a lot of diesel fumes, which may tickle my throat. My lungs are pretty much hoover bags at this point, spending this long in the desert anyway. And I'm walking now past Toyota. Toyota's Hilux, oh, again, sorry to just tell you to Google everything, but the stance of these, uh, of these uh, Hiluxes are incredible. And they've got full Riga Riga suspension, which can take abuse like you cannot believe. The heat that just must be going through these dampers is insane. They have no, the pickup bed is shortened and then basically chopped off and it's all made of carbon as I'm looking at it now with some sandboards attached to it, a central exhaust and a, a giant cooling fan out the back as a man comes with his trolley jack to lift it up and for it to go through another day. But those, they're now running twin turbo V6s which sounds so cool and so loud as the turbos come at you and before I go past, here's a, I'm going past an old, oh yeah, the Dakar Classic doesn't just have classic cars, it has classic trucks too. So there's a daft truck that looks like it's straight out of Mad Max with a chain dangling from its front bumper as its contemporary trucks are um, being worked on next to it with dual shocks at the front, dual shocks at the rear too. Great, oh my God, it's got the turbo the size of my head and a roll cage that looks like scaffolding that will keep it up a skyscraper. skyscraper. Um, God, the dampers are the size of me, as there is a man wrenching away, and there's the tyres of these things. Um, let me see if I can find a tyre size on the side. 37, 375s, 90s, 22.5s. Big boys, big boys. They've got big side walls, take abuse. Um, but punctures, that's a big thing here at Saudi Arabia, actually. There's a lot of rocky stages. 
and punctures are an issue. The Audis and Pro Drives, etc., they've got two spares um, kind of slung either side of them, like under their arms. And to get out, I spoke to Matthias Ekstrom, one of Audi's drivers, the other day, and he managed to change him and Emil, his uh, navigator, they managed to change tyre from puncture to new tyre a minute 39, which is like from detecting it, taking, stopping the car, taking your uh, air-conditioned helmet pipe thing that goes into the head so you that your head doesn't fry, uh, taking that off, undoing your belts, getting out of the cockpit, which is no mean feat. They're all tubeless chassis, the, the big trucks. And then uh, getting out of the car, applying the hydraulic jack, lifts the car up. One guy gets the nut gun, which is hidden in the door sill, takes off the wheel. The other one's getting the other wheel. They swap over, put it back on, put the old tire under the arm of the, uh, the car, strap that down, get back in, belt up, jack down, and then put your air-conditioned helmet thing back on and you're away in a minute 39 you're doing it all by yourself f1's pretty mad with their pit stops in two seconds but i think this is even crazier well i don't really know where to go now i think it's probably a good place to end i've just been rambling um i hope this has been slightly insightful i'm sorry there was no one to speak to but if you've never heard of the dakar rally i implore you to to catch up with it going on currently um i don't know who's going to win this year and no one does because literally anything can happen and probably will which makes it very exciting and whoever does cross the finish line anyone who does finish I've got the maddest of respect for them because it is one crazy event one of those ones nowadays you think how can this even still keep going a bit like the Isle of Man TT but the fact it does is just so so cool and the cars are cool the people are cool there's just a really fun atmosphere there's so much respect here because the danger is so high but also just how involved you have to be when you participate in here it's it's absolute madness and an absolute joy and pleasure to be here if not a little tiring but i shall not complain about that as uh, we go to bed and we start all over again at five in the morning as the sunrise uh the cars roll out and we end up in another part of saudi arabia and i do the same again so, um, yeah, if you go on talkgear.com, you'll be able to catch up with everything that's going on in the Dakar. And, um, yeah, there's lots of different articles on how everything works. Ollie Marriage has driven Audi's RSQ e-tron, and there is a video on the uh, YouTube channel. Go watch that. He has a chat with Carlos Sainz. He talks you through the car. It will take me about four hours in a podcast to even explain how that thing works. It's so complicated. It's got high and low voltage different energy units, there's the DTM aspects, you know, it's all very interesting. And uh, yeah, the next time you'll hear from me, is probably in the studio with the guys where I'll be back to normality with a sunburnt face and uh, very tired eyes, but it's all worth it. So uh, for now, like and subscribe, leave a review. Let us know if you like episodes like this, where we just kind of wander and plod around and bimble around bivouacs is the only opportunity we get to do that. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll see you on the next one. So have a good one. Bye.